Welcome to the Grow Strong Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I interview business leaders who are committed to their own growth and the development of everyone on their team. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Meredith Bell. And if you are a regular listener to my show, you know how much I enjoy bringing on guests who are focused on their own growth and development and also committed to the development of others. And with that in mind, you are going to just love my guest today. I'd like to welcome Anthony Berryhill. Anthony, I'm so glad to have you with me today. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, I can hardly wait for our conversation, but I think it's important to let my audience know more about you before we dive in. Anthony is the owner of Elite College Hacker, a consulting firm that specializes in helping students of color, both in the U.S. and in Asian countries, gain admission to America's top undergrad, medical, and business schools. Anthony was most recently the Vice President of Learning and Program Management for PIMCO, the country's top fixed income investment firm. And in this role, he designed the firm's employee professional development strategy with a particular emphasis on an inclusion-focused learning approach. You're going to love Anthony's career and life story. It's one filled with ethics ethical hacking, and he has spent the last 20 years teaching others his self-taught strategies on how to gain social mobility. Now, Anthony is a former resident of New Orleans Ninth Ward, and I know everyone in our country became familiar with that neighborhood when it was wiped out by Hurricane Katrina. Anthony was a first-generation low-income student who attended Stanford for undergrad, and is an alumnus of Yale's doctoral program in political science. And on top of all that, he's also an award-winning competitive debate coach. He has coached three national champions, one at the college level and two at the high school level. Anthony, that is quite a, a story and, um, <laughs> and a resume. And of course, I know you have such an interesting journey. Mm -hmm. Interesting is not even the right word. Fascinating, astonishing, <laughs> and it's really quite remarkable. And so I would love for you to share with my listeners mm -hmm. what happened there. What was what yeah. the journey that brought you to working with students today? Yeah, I'll try to be concise. It could be, my story could be a Hollywood movie. Um, a little bit of context. So in terms of the lower ninth ward, um, I was, you know, the youngest of four brothers. Um, my older brothers were also African-American males who, you know, who kind of did what they were supposed to do. <laughs> they went to school, they had girlfriends, they did all that kind of stuff that we normally expect. Um, whereas for some reason, when I was born, I was a super quiet kid. I loved reading math. I love reading math, video games, all the things. So my parents said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> um, <laughs> so we had a lot of fights. Um, and, there, and that's where it kind of started, which was recognized. And I knew even as early as seven or eight, when I was going through the New Orleans public school system, that I needed to get out. Um, the schooling system in that neighborhood at that time was very much 
kind of indicative of the phrase that we normally, that was now known now as like school to prison pipeline. The schools I went to were very much like that, even from the elementary school level. So there was a lot of things like bullying and, you know, some of the things that teachers would do that were just, just inappropriate. <laughs> I'll just keep it to that. Um, so then I realized at a young age, it's like, if I don't do something different from what I'm expected to do as an African-American young male, I'm in trouble, right? Because we could just go on and on, teen pregnancy, AIDS, all this other stuff that's happening to most people from my background. Um, so that then led me to a program called Breakthrough. It used to be called Summer Bridge, now Breakthrough Collaborative. Um, in New Orleans, I went to my elementary school because it was one of the lowest performing and most dangerous schools. Yes, elementary school. <laughs> um, and they said, do you, you know, we, we know there are some smart kids here. Do you want to make friends? Do you want to not be enough for studying? And I said, yes, me, please. <laughs> and I was the, one of the only two people to do that. And that was the first part. It was literally life-saving, where I finally met people who said, hey, it's okay to be smart. It's okay to want to get A's in school. Because that was not the culture at the elementary school I went to, which was, at, it was elementary. Um, and then that program helped me move to and did a lot of the work on the financial aid aspects, et cetera, in terms of applying to Isidore Newman High School, um, which is a very intense, very rigorous high school. The same high school where the Eli, Eli and Payne Manning went to, to give you a sense. Mm. And that really supercharged everything. I was no longer bullied. I was super protected. They spent money for me to go to debate tournaments. They, you know, that school is the ultimate of inclusion and diversity in that regard. And I think from there, the, you know, the, the rest of the story follows where I got, you know, got a counselor, but what I, what I started to do even at that high school was I recognized, I think this is important for me to kind of slow down and really focus on, um, to survive that high school, I had to really figure out a new strategy for how to study, how to pick classes very intentionally, and a lot of the things that my parents had no idea what was going on. <laughs> and what I noticed is that a lot of other students from my background who would go to that school, they would be C and D students, not because they weren't smart or hardworking, but because they weren't told kind of how to hack the system, so to speak. They weren't told, hey, here's how you speed read. They weren't told how to memorize. They were told how to do, how, to, how do you get an A on a test where you only get 10% for memorization? <laughs> um, and those are the kind of things that aren't spoken about. <laughs> um, and then after that, I realized, oh, this also applies to high school debate. This also applies to a lot of different things um, where I think there is a real opportunity, especially nowadays, um, to kind of unravel how to do well. Um, and that's kind of, that's been my mission. I had to teach myself and get myself out, you know, I had to help others who also need that kind of help. You know, thank you. It's so remarkable to me, these discoveries you made along the way that led you to be able to break through. And one of the things I remember you mentioning to me was having a hustle mindset. And so tell us what that is and how did you come to develop it based on the environment you grew up in? Yeah, I want to make a slight, I think, I think hustle mindset, since we talked, I think it's gotten a bad name from some other individuals. It's hustling is working 100 hours with no pay. That's not what I'm talking about. When you say hustle mindset, it's, I would, another way to call it is this opportunism. So it's recognizing, I may not know what this is about, but I would take the risk and apply and work quickly. <laughs> so for example, had I not just said, you know what, let's just figure out what this breakthrough collaborative thing is, I probably wouldn't be alive today. <laughs> um, and I certainly would have applied wouldn't have applied to a place like Stanford. So that's part of it. One is just recognizing opportunities and seeking them and actively always searching for new opportunities. Kind of like anyone else which should be doing, right, if you're trying to get a job. 
That's one thing. I think the second thing, part of that mindset, it's doing things you don't want to do. Um, and that's very hard for people. <laughs> um, it's, all right, I have a deadline. I have to I have a 15-page paper. I'm staying up late. <laughs> or I'm taking EP Calculus. This is a real example. And the teacher said, you have to memorize the fundamental theorem of calculus for 35 steps, no numbers. So that household mindset means, okay, I'm in trouble. <laughs> what resources can I find to figure out how to meet this challenge? And I, what I've noticed with a lot of students and adults and people in HR, <laughs> it's a lot of, I want things my way and give it to me, I'm entitled. Whereas I think a household mindset is the opposite. It's what do I need to do to achieve the outcomes I need? And sometimes that's a lot of work. <laughs> mm -hmm. And sometimes it's a lot of strategy. Um, and I think that's that's where I'm talking, making hustle mindset. I think people think hustle mindset is let's do a bunch of dumb stuff because it feels good for my ego. In fact, the hustle mindset is very ego destroying. It's very much what do I have to do to appeal to the, my audience or my judge or my teacher or the person I want an opportunity from? Mm -hmm. I, I love that definition. It makes so much sense. And, you know, to me, the big aspect of that is commitment. Mm hmm. You're you're real, not just realizing what needs to be done, but you're making that commitment to do yeah. whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. And so you you actually did that in your application to Stanford. And mm -hmm. I really want you to tell the story that you shared in that application sure. that caused some of the members of the committee to even cry. I mean, that's that's pretty profound. So it's a really important story. Yeah, I you know I, I don't know if it's the Stanford admissions committee, but it was certainly it's obviously it worked. <laughs> this was I think we're talking about the personal statement, um, yes. where um, honestly, you know, what I did in my personal statements, what I, well, I have all my students do, is just tell the truth. <laughs> um, so at that time, you know, I was 17, my mom and I fought all the time over these cultural issues. She, she hated the fact that I did debate. She gets it now, but she hated that I did debate. She hated that I did calculus. My dad even worse. Um, so I'm thinking, how do I explain my life for that? I'm a 17 year old. I have no car, no dating history, <laughs> no money. And I take three buses to school. And then I go to debate tournaments for my weekends. <laughs> I didn't know how to describe all that. Like this, this is a story that intersects racism, sexism, all those things, primarily from people of my own race. <laughs> um, so how did I describe that? And I think, so the story I told is, I mean, I had a title, it was called Saving Private Berry Hill. <laughs> um, but the story I told was I don't belong anywhere, which, I which is exactly how I felt. It's like, I live in one hand in an African-American community where my, even my own family, no, sorry, my parents don't accept me. And then I go to a high school that does accept me, but I feel like an alien. I, I'm like, I don't know what's going on. What's this language I'm hearing? Um, a cute example is like people would play like Dave Matthews band. And I thought, what is this? <laughs> the stuff. Um, so my story was, you know, since I was five and when I went, you know, got conscious, I, the story was that I live in a war. Um, where there's two sides, particularly in New Orleans, which has a lot of racial segregation, um, where I live in the black world, so to speak, you know, living in the inner city where people don't understand what I'm doing, don't even consider me black sometimes. And then I go to a school that is very welcoming, but I'm alien to that environment too. And the two worlds don't understand each other. Um, and the motif I use was as a war, <laughs> that I'm a soldier fighting a war. And and I need kind of like Private Ryan is the model I use where it's like he's in both sides of that fence. He's like, I get where the United States is coming from, but I get where the other side is coming from. And he's seeing death everywhere. 
And that's what I had in my head, which, which I think is accurate, right? When I think about what happens, particularly to urban Black men in that neighborhood, we're talking 20% graduation rates if you're lucky, mm. right? So my so the argument I made in the essay, using a lot of examples from, let's say, elementary school, one case where I was spat on by a student and the teacher was totally okay with that, <laughs> Um once I, I had a stab at kid <laughs> and in third grade because he was beating me to, to a pulp <laughs> because the teacher was like, you're the class monitor. You have to tell on people who act up while I'm gone and smoke. No kidding. That actually happened. <laughs> um, to going to high school where I'm thinking, you know, I, I, what I did was I remember uh, talked about a lot of particular moments, i.e. a moment when I came home from one of the national tournaments as a trophy in the <laughs> I got from there with a trophy, a hundred people papers um in a backpack and I'm walking past people to get into my apartment who are like what are you what's wrong with you <laughs> so I talked about a lot of those examples and I ended it with a story of someone who went to the elementary school that I was talking to a very abusive one and and I you know reflecting the fact that he was actually killed because someone robbed him for his Air Jordan sneakers um and then the, the, the essay ends with a moment I remember very vividly um, when I was in a, you know, a, a nearby mall in that inner city where, and this is very common inner city neighborhoods where you, you, there was a picture of a person who was killed and there was a line that said the wrong soldier died. Um, and then my argument was, I'm a soldier. I've always been a soldier and I don't want to be. So I'm trying to get out. That was the argument. Um, and I guess the reason to make people cry is because it was, it's a lot of nasty negative stuff. Um, but it came from a position of truth, which is, this is how it is. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, I didn't even know it would register this way to people. The way I found out about it was actually my high school counselor called me down to his office and I thought I was in trouble. And he's like, hey, um, these school, these missions officers called me to see if this is true. And he's like, yes, it's entirely true. And then they, and he's like, well, yeah, the whole mission committee cried. Um, I think you're getting in. <laughs> And he was right. <laughs> so that's the story of the essay. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, what is my truth? And how do I tell it through specifics? So I was not one of those writing about climate change, although that wasn't the topic back then, or I, uh, you know, I want a school with great academics. I, uh, none of that made sense to me. I thought, let me just tell my story because this is where I'm coming from. Well, it's, it's such a, an amazing story. And Anthony, I want you to talk about how this, how your story and what you discovered from telling your story and telling the truth ties in with what you call ethical hacking now, yes. which you help other students mm -hmm. in their own applications. Yeah, um, I think it's funny because, you know, obviously with the college admissions world, we've wrote very recent cheating scandal a few years ago. And I'll tell you, I'll answer this indirectly. The thing that annoyed me most about the scandal is how badly it was executed. <laughs> um, because the students who cheated didn't need to, right? There were ways to play the system. Like if you wanted to buy a spot, you could do it. <laughs> um, you didn't have to lie. Like they didn't have to lie about being on sports and things like that. So what does that mean about ethical hacking? So when I talk, when I, you know, I say the way I work with students is not to try to convince them. To, like, I think let's start with most of the time students and parents think they can just fool the admissions committee. Right. They'll think, oh, Anthony, I need you to have an exceptional essay because my student has a low GPA and then I don't work with them. Because I say, wait a minute, we have a problem. <laughs> you can't lie about your grades. You can't you can't make it up. 
But what you can do is say, what is it about myself that would make a classroom better? That would make my classmates happier? That would make a professor say, oh my God, a new perspective. And I think, so that brings in the truth telling. You have to, like, so number one is recognizing what is my actual story and just tell it fully and cut all the cliches, cut all the stuff that people tell you to say. That's one thing. Um, I think the second thing in terms of ethical hacks, um, it's just a lot of it comes to just core human psychology. So one thing I'll give Stanford credit for, their psychology department is top notch, especially in social psychology. So one of the things I did as an undergrad was I took a minor in psychology and read all those books and realized, oh, well, how do we persuade people? Authenticity, which is a big topic, right? Telling the truth and also getting others to validate what you already say. Um, so in my story earlier, right, it was, Someone called my college counselor to make sure that that was true. And one of the hacks I do, and I guess I'll define ethical hacking in a moment, is get students to say, okay, you love video games. Is there a way you can do that so that other people can validate how committed you are to it? And I'll give you one mini example. One student I had with a low GPA and not a great file, after two hours of me grilling and grilling on like, every activity they're doing, they said, well, I'm number two in co-op Madden. And I thought, that's our game. <laughs> the parents were horrified, but then they get three scholarships because esports, <laughs> right? So it's recognizing that things that we think aren't good could be very valuable to, to the admissions committee because they have to find the best class of students. Whereas I think a lot of people think, oh, my hack to the system is saying a bunch of cliches and you know, and then telling people what they want to hear. But those schools, that's the opposite of what you need to be doing. You need to be telling them, who are you? And then feature that. Um, and I think that's what, so when I think about ethical hacking, the ethical part is that we're not doing anything that's dishonest. It's merely subtracting all the foolishness <laughs> so that we're actually giving a clear signal. Just as in the job interview, you want to get rid of things that are distractions. That's a lot of what I do on a high level um, with admissions. Well, you know, speaking of job applications, there's mm -hmm. so much of what you're saying that I think applies yeah. within the workplace. And I think most of my listeners are in the workplace. They have mm -hmm. a business. So what what, do you, what are some ways that we could think about applying what you're talking about if somebody's interested in applying for a job either yeah. with another company or even internal to their own company? And even when they have an important idea that mm -hmm. they want to sell to their manager or a larger group within the organization. Sure. I'll give one general principle. I guess we could dig in more. But I think the general principle I think is think about the audience. And that seems simple, but very few people want to do it. And I think very intimately. So in, for example, when I coach debate, super competitive, it's, do I know who this judge is? We, you know, they write things like judge paradigms, which long documents of this is what I want to vote for, this is what I expect. Most top debaters don't read it, which is foolish. Mm. <laughs> so when I have a student who's like is, is in the qualifying round or the final round of Harvard, we read those documents and we do what they say. We use the language that those judges are talking about um, because it's nothing's more frustrating when then, well, it's like, I did all this work to tell you how to, how to get what you want, but you don't care. Um, so how that shows up in several places in terms of, I mean, cause I, you know, it's in HR, <laughs> um, one place is just, you know, there's a lot of talk about the great resignation and one of the most frustrating things I've had across my whole HR career is that a lot of senior leaders don't want to actually do 
what the Gen Zers are asking for. <laughs> and often sometimes, and this is a little bit of a hot take, they're not asking for things that they shouldn't ask for. So for example, upward mobility, transparency and career pathing, you know, adequate training and development that speaks to where they're coming from. These are things I've gotten a lot of pushback on, um, but, be but because those senior leaders, executive VPs or whatever, they're not paying attention to their audience. And as a result, they face 40% attrition. Mm -hmm. So what I've often seen is the cycle of, in the job world, well, why are these young folks not doing what I want them to do? And my answer is, it's not about you. <laughs> They're telling you they want good training. They want an inclusive environment. And by the way, we should be doing these things anyway. <laughs> um, but that's in the job form. In the application world, where I work with people who are trying to get road scholarships and things like that, the way this shows up is that often some students will say, I'm a deserving student and I am going to spit a bunch of cliches at you and not really answer your question to why you want to go to your Ivy League school. Or they'll say things like, I just want an Ivy League. And they'll write that in an essay. And then they'll wonder why they got rejected. And I'm thinking, well, that's like, here's an analogy. That's like a guy going to a woman at a bar and saying, I want someone as pretty as you are. That's why I'm talking to you would never work, but that's what everyone does in, in applications, in jobs, and as leaders. Um, so maybe the, my, my bias here is that I'm a debate coach <laughs> um, at very high levels, where I this is the first thing I build into their DNA. It's do whatever the audience expects, <laughs> and they're telling you. Um, so um, one more example I noticed, I mean, I actually had an incident <laughs> with a parent where um, we were working on the University of California applications where they have four essays that are very specific. So one of them is, tell us, give an example of a leadership experience in which you do one of three things, like help others resolve conflicts. And the mom said, no, you have to scrap the whole essay after four drafts because you didn't talk about your leadership philosophy. And, that's an, and then I had a corrector saying, wait a minute, look at the question. <laughs> the question is, I want an example to do a specific thing, but this parent, and, to be fair to her, I've got this happens a lot with parents sometimes. The question says, I want X, but they want to do Y. They want to feel good, like, oh, talk about this high-level stuff. And they're about to send their child from UC Berkeley to a rejection because he they won't answer the question. So I will say the second part of that is that's the ego destruction part. It's don't answer the question you want, answer the question you're given. Um, because otherwise. You're just a, it's, a, it's a form of disrespect, I would argue. Mm -hmm. That's such an important point for everybody. And you know what, to me, it also explicitly uh, points to is the importance of doing your homework. Yes. To really know your audience. Mm -hmm. And so I just love these examples you've given. And with some of these students that you're helping apply to their dream school, what are some of the things that you help them do or explain to them to help them find out more about their audience? So that yeah. they do not just answer the question correctly, but really touch into at a deeper level the, mm -hmm. the audience that's reviewing their application. There's several things. I'll start. The first thing I, I try to reduce the noise around the student. And this shows a certain, there's a lot of examples here, but I tell them first off, don't listen to your friends. <laughs> the amount of theories that are catastrophically wrong, like game ending, 
decisions. It's just unbelievable. So I say, don't listen to your friends. And sometimes I tell them, sometimes I don't let them listen to their parents either. Because everyone who wants this locus control, they try to make sense of things they don't understand. I like to call this the price is right effect. <laughs> so if you ever see that game show where someone's trying to guess a price and they'll look to the, they look to the crowd and everyone's screaming numbers and they have no idea what's going on. Right. It's the same thing in admissions. So um, one thing I do, you know, when I feel like it's necessary, I will sometimes ban parents from reading the essay. Because especially when I have those one-on-ones with the student, I'm thinking, okay, this student's story is one that the parents don't want to tell, but the admissions office needs to hear. Mm. Particularly because I hear a lot of stories of abuse of various different forms, hear stories of like, you know, guys having body image issues, like the whole range, right? And and so, so number one is we got to get to a point where you, it's safe for you to tell your story um, so that you're not trying to tell a story that your parents want to hear or that your friends want to hear because mm-hmm. the judge is the admissions office, right? So that's number one. Number two, um, really forcing, like excavating their experience. And particularly, I, I look for the things that people think are not valuable, so one thing I like to do is like, like particularly video games, right? There's this cliche of like, if you play video games, I can't date you or you're immature, but that's foolish <laughs> just to say um, when you're looking at schools that have esports <laughs> spots <laughs> that want gamers, even the army hires gamers. So then why would I let some, my student listen to their parent tell them to stop playing video games when the market's telling them very different? So that's number two. It's just like making sure we highlight things that they don't think are valuable, but often can be gems. So that's number two. Oh. Number three, I think it's go back to doing your research, but make mandating students do their do deep research on schools. Um, one of the things, one of the phrases I hear that scares the heck out of me as an admissions coach is when people say things like, I want to get in an Ivy League or I want a school that has good academics. And what I will do is I will immediately cross-examine them saying, what does good academics mean exactly? <laughs> what operationalize that? <laughs> what does the class look like? And I will do this also in the social life aspects too. Um, you know, one of the challenges I had in school was that the social life wasn't great for me because I didn't drink a whole bunch and I wasn't in the hookup culture. So <laughs> when I work with students, I ask them very deeply, what is the Saturday night you want? <laughs> mm. Who do you want to hang out with? Who do you uh-huh. want to avoid? Um, because the worst case scenario is I get you in a Harvard and then you hate it. <laughs> the schools don't want that either. Um, so having very frank conversations about, okay, what do you actually want? And sometimes I have students that say, no, I want to go to frat parties and, and hang out and look up and whatever. And I'm like, that's good. How can I help you? <laughs> right? Because it's not my job to tell them what they desire. I want them to know what they want. And here's how it shows up. It shows up in the, in the supplemental essays. It, 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 when, when you say things like, oh, Princeton and Harvard are the same, you end up not getting into either <laughs> because the schools think they're different and they know they have different cultures. So making sure students know not just themselves, but what does the school do in particular? So, for example, why major questions? Like, why do you want to major in X things? Common question. I will have the students act like a PhD and go to the department webpage and tell me exactly which classes, which professors, which, which workshops they would do, and then write about that. Which is very offensive to most people who do admissions. They just think, oh, I should be able to say I want to go to Michigan and say, go Bears or go Wolverines. 
I've seen that a lot in essays. <laughs> um, worst thing you can do, right? Because it's such a stereotypical way of saying, I want to do this activity mm-hmm. versus I know something that most people don't talk about, i.e. your subpoint of a subpoint of your robotics <laughs> team. And I have evidence from my file that I've already started doing this work. That's how you can get in. But most people want to just kind of keep it very kind of high level and cliched. Whereas with my students, I I make them mini experts (laughs) at the schools they're applying for and making sure they can have that vocabulary, i.e. I want them to know the difference between a liberal arts college and a public university. I want them to understand the difference between a major in electrical engineering and a major in computer science, because that's how... At this point in 2022, that's how applicants are being evaluated when we're facing one to three percent accept rates. Mm. Wow. You know, what you're bringing up is is so important. And as I'm reflecting on the various points you've been making, it requires it goes back to that commitment, mm-hmm. that willingness to do the work. It's not an, an op, but and yet you're giving a beautiful blueprint okay. of what can, what does it take in order to do this? It, it requires someone skilled like you, though, okay. to ask the questions, not be afraid of what their answers might be. And, mm-hmm. and in a way, shake them up a bit, mm-hmm. uh, not physically, but mentally, yes, really get that. them to think. And so tell me some of the other questions that you ask them that maybe certainly their parents wouldn't ask, but maybe nobody else would ask Mm -hmm. that you've seen really be difference makers in the way they complete their application, tell their stories or whatever else that helps them become successful. Sure. Let me think of, here's one, and this is particularly for Stanford. Because people think Stanford go up there and look prim and proper, which is the opposite of Stanford. (laughs) I will ask, what do you love to do that others don't approve of? (laughs) I mean, so I had a student who got in who's Chinese, but per Tibet. (laughs) That was an essay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they got it. Right. So, or here's another one. Um, I asked them like if they've had any experience of being bullied or marginalized. Um, and sometimes, I mean, that's, I hear some stuff, right? And then I say, hey, and they'll, and they'll say, I don't want to talk about that. That's negative. That's, that's another one of those worst advice in history. <laughs> don't be negative. Terrible advice. Anyone who says that should be <laughs> not working with students. Because sometimes the, the negativity has a positive element. Um, so I will ask them, and often without the parents there, like, I want to know the real truth, like what's going on, because that then I'm like, oh, that explains why you got those bees. <laughs> that explains why you do this activity. That's the story of your application that I can actually we can actually sell to an admissions officer. Um, in other words, the way I think about it, and I actually tell my students this is, imagine you're someone who on a Friday and I have 200 applications, their pets are running around, they have two babies. And they're reading these cliche, terrible essays that 90% of students write because their parents think that's what you should do. What can I say to that person to feel like, oh, I have a connection to this human being? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess so. the third part I would say is, what can I say so that an admissions officer is willing to make a bunch of brownies to bribe the committee to let that person in? <laughs> and I, I'm stealing this from Rachel Tour, Tool's book, um, Missions Confidential, where she talked about, because like, 
this is part of that knowing your audience. Like what I do every day, I watch YouTube, God bless my partner. I watch YouTube videos about admissions offices and how they work and what are the politics of it. <laughs> and if you, so think, if it's always like, think about what can I tell this person who's gonna have to get 15 other people rejected? What what I give them? I gotta give them something. Like this is a person who did this or did that. And I think a lot of students are so afraid because they don't want to be they don't, they want to be cool. They want to conform. They want to be popular. But in admissions, when you're facing two percent or ten percent or twenty percent, um, cool and popular and obedient doesn't get you there. Mm -hmm. um, being distinctive, as Harvard likes to call it, being yourself. Um, at Stanford calls also intellectual vitality. I would encourage anyone listening to this to look up that phrase and how Sanford defines it. It's the students who are willing to continue a conversation about about their courses in the cafeteria. That's not cool in American high school. <laughs> um, but it's the number one thing that Stanford evaluates people on. Hmm. So what I ask students to do is like, tell me what you nerd out about. <laughs> And then we're writing essays on it. So the most recent example, a student, Asian American student, which is one of the hardest populations to work with. And I, and I asked that question, what do you nerd out about? And she's like, well, I nerd out about, I nerd out about kind of non-binary characters in video games. And I'm like, tell me a video game that you like. Last of Us 2. It doesn't matter if I think that's nerdy or dumb. It was, it was in a Dartmouth essay and she got in. <laughs> because she's like, I'm a gamer. My mom hates it, but I like it. And I think there's some good work on gender that these video games show. And I want to be a future designer to create these kind of games for people like me who identifies as gender non-binary. And that's something someone can appeal to. And if it's and if it's and if it's counterintuitive or controversial, I love that stuff. That's even better, um, particularly for high-level schools, because the like way I put it is this is that these schools are all looking for the best of everything. They want the most rebellious people. They want the people who are the best at languages, the best at math, the best at every single thing. Whereas most applicants, they think, let me fit into some fake bubble um, that will fool them <laughs> and think I'm awesome, which it actually does the opposite. Mm. This is pure gold, Thank Anthony, you. When especially when we zoom out and, and look at what you're talking about through the mm -hmm. lens of applications for jobs mm -hmm. and promotions where the person has to do exactly what you're talking about. Look at what, what it is they nerd out about. Mm -hmm. How can that be a contribution to the company? Mm -hmm. I think that's the key. It's that whole thing with mm -hmm. the audience and in a, in a work environment, you really have multiple audiences. You have your own manager, you've yep. got your team members, you've got the executives, you've got kind of the company at large. Mm -hmm. All of the suggestions that you've been sharing to me apply beautifully in that same arena. Yeah. If I may elaborate entirely. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, because I mean, I when I was working at PEMCO, I did 10 interviews. <laughs> I mean, and then the company before that, eight interviews. So you have to you can't lie or fake your way through that. Um, and I've noticed with particularly good interviewers, they will do, they will deep dive on something. They will ask questions. They will, they'll try to read your energy. They'll try to read your vocabulary. It's quiet what they'll evaluate you on. Um, and I think what I've noticed is that clear honesty and authenticity is the number one thing. 
But people walk into interviews thinking, I'm so nervous. Let me show my nervousness and let me say the right answer. I don't want to really tell you a weakness. But they don't realize that they're sabotaging themselves badly. So a person who would get the job doesn't get it because they're trying to act a part. Um, I'll give a good mini story here. Um, I was working at a Yale summer camp that had a had some unofficial like connections to the admissions office. Like these are high level students. This was a recruiting end of Yale, and I was working with an agent and you know, a student from Hong Kong who didn't really fit in with the other kids who were very kind of preppy, overly privileged kids, like legacy times ten. Um, and I knew who his inter- he was doing an interview while at the camp, and I knew his interviewer personally. Um, and I, of course, didn't break any boundaries. Um, but the kid asked me, hey, Anthony, what do I do? I'm not like these other kids. And to give you, I'll be with specific, he's the kind of Asian boy who loves drifting in cars, loved sneaker guy, loved, was wearing, loved his Air Force Ones and all that other stuff. And I said, please communicate that. <laughs> Tell them those hobbies. Um, and the reason I told him that was because, it, you know, at Yale, and he, he was interviewing with someone who's a current undergraduate, mm-hmm. you know, who would work on the admissions committee. And guess what the criterion is? <laughs> Not officially, but it's you're being evaluated as a future doormate. You're being evaluated as someone, who, I mean, even if you're working with, the, even if you're talking to the admissions committee officers or your interviewers, they're evaluating you in terms of what you contribute and how you would be with other people. So when I told him, look, you need to be yourself and don't act like these fake kids. <laughs> Please don't. That's not going to get you the rating you need. So he went up there and talked about drifting cars. He talked about all this stuff. His interviewer came back to me and said, I gave him a nine out of 10 and not in the Yale scale, not officially. <laughs> it's hard to get high ratings in interviews. Mm. And the reason was that's the coolest person. I could totally connect with them. They were unafraid to tell me what they really liked. And I'm like, that's the point. <laughs> and then, of course, they got in the yell. Mm-hmm. That's so great. I love that. That's a beautiful way for us to conclude this conversation, mm-hmm. even though it could keep on going. Yes, it could. <laughs> you're just so fascinating. And I, I really value all the things you've shared today, Anthony. Tell my listeners how they can connect with you, learn more about your hacking services. Yes, I, I am wearing the con- Any other contact information you'd like to yes. share? Yes. So I have a website, www.elitecollegehacker.com, all in one phrase. I'm also on LinkedIn under Anthony Berryhill, so you'll find my information there. And then finally, my email is anthony at elitecollegehacker.com. And I'm more than happy to have conversations with people, whether or not they need help on college admissions or otherwise. Well, I agree. You're such a fascinating person and just a remarkable human being. I've enjoyed getting to know you and thank you for all the wisdom you've shared. And I just want to say, I admire so much all the things that you've done, not just for yourself, but your way of giving back to others to be helping them in their own journeys. I just think it's, it's fabulous. And I love what you're doing. So thank you for being with me today. Excellent. Thanks for tuning in to my podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com and check out our two books, Connect With Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. While you're there, download the free facilitator guide to find out how to implement our unique peer coaching system. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.